Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Welcome to the Blazer's Edge podcast, part of the Almighty Baller Radio Network. I'm Tara Bowen-Biggs, here with my trusty co-host, Dan Morang. And I have to admit, I am a little starstruck right now because we have a guest today who is uh, one of a duo, which is one of my very favorite podcasts. So I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up and be a little bit too fangirl. So I'm going to kick it over to you, Dan, to introduce our guest. See, I don't know if I'm necessarily trusty, but I can go ahead and, and, and knock our guest down a peg or two because I've, I've known him since high school. So, you know, <laughs> anytime I have been on, we, we, we can always go back to the trusty days of Beaverton High School. And uh, without further ado, the, the illustrious, the glorious, the Northwest Nikola Jokic, Ben Gulliver. Ben, thanks for joining us, man. I feel like it's tradition that I have to go BHS, BHS, fight, fight, fight whenever I come on here for our Beaverton Beavers. We, we do have uh, to shout them out. for having me on, and uh, thank you for the very kind intro. All right, so, yeah, you had quite the, uh, the write-up on Yusuf Nurkic, and obviously we had... Um, the tail end of, of Nurkic fever, fever subside and kind of roll into the summer, and then everybody cooled down, and, and the, the cure was out there. Nurk lost some weight, got ready for the season, coming into the season, and uh, hopes are high. So let's kind of start with the beginning here with, with the idea of the use of Nurkic story, because this is, this is to be honest, it's a hell of a feature. Um, what made you want to do the story on him? Well, a couple of things. First of all, when he got traded to the Blazers, I was pretty down on the move from Portland side. I just didn't really think he had much of an NBA future. I mean, everyone knows the issues that he had in Denver in terms of like, you know, all the red flags, whether it's the injuries or the locker room stuff or, you know, butting heads with coach Mike Malone and all that. But on top of all that, you just sort of look at his profile and you think, okay, he's a traditional center. He's not like this amazing low post scorer. Lots of turnovers, lots of foul trouble um, to that point really hadn't had much of a positive defensive impact. And so uh, that trade to me was sort of like, okay, Portland punts on its season. And it definitely did not wind up going that way. And certainly it made me and my trade grade look bad. And so I would say the number one motivation for being interested in Nurkic was basically receiving uh, a, a smart, intelligent hate mail from Blazers fans for about three <laughs> months straight saying like, how could you possibly have gotten that trade grade so wrong? Uh, and so on and so forth. So that was motivation. Number one, uh, number two, obviously very demonstrative guy on the court and very honest and quotable, quotable guy off the court. And that's always a good combination when you're talking about doing a sit down interview or really trying to get to know someone, if they have a clear developed personality and it's not like you're pulling teeth, trying to get it out of them. Uh, that can make for just an interesting experience and an interesting writing subject. So that was sort of um, the genesis. And also, obviously, you know, coming into a contract year for him, I didn't really expect him to get that early extension. Uh, and so I knew that what Portland decided to do with Nurkic was going to be one of their biggest decisions 
kind of going forward here. Uh, obviously, we know about the cap situation, you know, totally loaded up with big contracts, but somebody's got to play center. You know, someone's got to be there in the middle. And when you're looking at all the options who were available, it definitely seemed like he was kind of a cut above everybody else on the roster. And, uh, you know, we've seen these last couple of years in free agency centers can get really, really expensive, even guys who are sort of role players. And so this just seemed like a real, you know, big decision, kind of a pivotal moment for this team. And, you know, I've always had a fondness for the Blazer centers kind of, you know, I, I first came up and it was like the Greg Oden era. Right. And, and because that didn't work out, you're seeing just how many different methods they can try to fill that spot. I mean, I, I'm sure you guys you know, closed your eyes, you know, with blindfolds during the JJ Hickson era. I mean, there was the Robin Lopez uh, tenure, which was fun. And, uh, you know, ultimately uh, probably more successful than I expected, but they've cycled through a bunch of different options there. And I think there was times, especially at towards the end of last season where it seemed like, okay, this guy is the one who's going to stick. So those were the reasons I think why I decided to write about him. So more of the story here got- is keep sending hate mail to Ben. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious that uh, about the, the article, you know, a lot of us, when Nurkic came here, we heard about, you know, the legendary story about his father fighting the 13 men. And, you know, he came with, you know, uh, a, a backstory. I'm curious what you learned about him in the course of doing this story that you didn't already know, or what surprised you about him? Well, couple things. First of all, you know, he sticks by that uh, story about his dad, you know, pretty tightly. I mean, he says that's sort of how he got discovered. Um, you know, he was basically 14 years old at that time where he gets plucked to go to essentially what I would call like Slovenian you know, basketball, like, you know, boarding school or military academy where he's playing basketball and going to classes all day, every day around the clock, sort of in this like military mindset to make up for the fact that he really hadn't played much basketball to that point of his career, or I guess his life at that point, uh, and trying to play catch up. So, uh, I think that story, while it's so larger than life, it's kind of like Paul Bunn, you know, his, his dad just takes down these 13 people in a brawl and the agent comes and finds him. Uh, it winds up, you know, being sort of his origin because he's, uh, you know, he's definitely not in a traditional track for how you develop a basketball player. I mean, we think about, like Steph Curry, you know, he can barely walk and he's tagging around with his dad in the basketball court or like LeBron James Jr. I mean, uh, I think the development process for most NBA players or lots of them begins probably as soon as they can walk and dribble. And for him, it certainly wasn't that. Uh, The other thing I learned about him that just kind of struck me as kind of perfect was that his grandfather was a a Bosnian uh, farmer and he kept bulls and he was like really passionate about his bull farm. And it makes sense because Nurkic is such a stubborn guy. And I think we can say, you know, very self-interested, uh, uh, have very clear thoughts about his role, his minutes uh, throughout his career. And it's just kind of you've got this image of like the bulls on the farm and then his dad, you know, putting all these people uh, in the hospital in the brawl. And then Nurkic is sort of following. I mean, the, the genetic tree there is very obvious. And I thought that was uh, you know, pretty rich, too. But I think my favorite thing from his whole backstory that I didn't know was his one-year detour to Zadar. And Zadar was basically, it's a smaller town in Croatia, right along the coast. And they just happen to be totally basketball obsessed. I mean, the stadium there is 10,000 people. It's bigger than I believe in any other stadium in Croatia, if I'm not mistaken, at least for like uh, their Croatian League home games. They basically sell it out or close to sell it out every single night when he's walking around this little town, even though he's, 
still a teenager, uh, all the, the people are recognizing him, noticing him, calling him by name. They're all wearing the jerseys when he goes to the store. And so it really feels like a community. And he told me this is sort of where he actually fell in love with basketball. He learned to kind of have the passion for the game that he hadn't had to that previous point because it was sort of like a job when you're in boarding school. You know, it's not necessarily fun. Uh, that was the moment where he really decided that, hey, this isn't just a job. You know, this is something that I want to do with my life. And I just thought there were so many parallels between that experience and sort of what happened, uh, you know, last spring, too. I mean, you talk about the smaller city, you know, Portland being right on the river, all the fans being diehards, recognizing him around town, the whole Nurk fever idea. Uh, there, it was just you know, almost like foreshadowing to, to sort of his Blazers experience. And what really set it off, sort of like the cherry on top of the cupcake, was the fact that he landed in Zadar because he pushed his way out of his previous team. And, and his coach was actually uh, Alexander Petrovich. So, you know, Blazers legend Drazen Petrovich's brother was his coach. And uh, Petrovich comes to him and says, look, there's not going to be enough playing time. You're going to be the backup. And rather than saying, okay, you know, I'm only 16 or 17. I'm okay with that. I'm going to wait my turn. Nurkic is like, no way I'm out of here. Like, you know, figure something out. I, I don't want to wait. Uh, so they, they put him on a loan to Zotter. And so, you know, he winds up having a bigger role there. He's a pretty important player. And then lo and behold, uh, it comes to the semifinals of the Croatian league and, and Nurkic's new team, Zotter beats his old team and eliminates them from the semifinals of the playoffs. And so he's in this situation where he's like, you know, shaking hands after the game and all of his old teammates are like, man, we really should have kept you. We kind of screwed that up. Uh, and to me, it was kind of similar to that game against the Nuggets last year where they're all shaking hands on the court and, and Nurkic kind of has his big revenge uh, against the Nuggets. So to me, the real takeaway from that Zotter experience was that it validated in Nurkic's mind that his view of himself should kind of carry the day. There's no need for patience. Uh, you know, you have to be self-interested. Uh, you can't wait around and just hope for playing time. You have to go out and make it happen. And so we saw that play out, you know, first when he was in Croatia, but then again, obviously uh, in the NBA. And that's sort of, you know, why we're even talking about him. You know, one thing I've thought about, let's say he hadn't pushed his way out of Denver and he's just kind of like rotting on their bench. I mean, what's his career look like? I mean, certainly what's his earning potential look like this season? Uh, I'm sure it would be a fraction of what he's hoping to get next summer. So. Uh, there's a certain, uh, you know, admirable quality to how assertive he's been in terms of carving out his role. Uh, and that's something that kind of I was drawn to when I was writing the piece. So basically, the, he's the an thing NBA struck- level looper. I mean, that, <laughs> that's basically what we're looking at. The the idea here that I kind of want to touch on, and I want to cut you off there, Tara, but this, I wanted to get this one while he's on this particular topic in general. Nurkic's attitude. The, the stubborn, the bullish, the, the desire to want to prove himself. For those out there who don't interact or interview or just be around NBA players regularly, how does that attitude differ for him compared to other guys around the league? Yeah, I mean, one thing I'd say is that it's kind of coming in a different package, but it's, it's fairly similar. All these guys are super competitive. You know, I mean, look at like LeVar ball, what's he doing right now? He's taking his youngest son out of high school to homeschool him. Like, is that really that different uh, than, you know, Nurk is trying to force his way to a better situation Or you look at like OJ Mayo. He's a guy I profiled over the summer. 
I mean, he was like the number one player in his high school class. I mean, this guy played at three different high schools, you know, kind of same thing for Andrew Wiggins, same thing for Kevin Durant. These guys bounce around trying to find the best opportunity, the best coach, the best fit. Uh, And then, of course, I mean, look no further than sort of the one and done scenario, right? Like, could it be any more um, obvious how these guys view their careers when they're, uh, you know, going to college? I mean, most of them are already sort of like professionally training for the NBA by the time, you know, finals exams roll around uh, in the spring. So uh, I think from a, you know, a personality standpoint, he's right in line actually with a lot of American players. I just think the difference was, uh, first of all, he came to the game so late that he was sort of feeling this ticking time bomb or this, this clock feeling like he was playing catch up. And then also he was doing it while on a professional contract because those guys over there can get paid you know, unlike high school players and college players here. So uh, there was some contrast just situationally, but I think uh, big picture, you know, a lot of guys uh, are acting in their own self-interest. And I think that's the toughest thing for any NBA coach. When you have a locker room of 15 guys, all of them have people in their lives, whether it's agents, family members, friends telling them, Hey, you got to shoot more. You got to get more minutes. You got to talk to your coach about your role. Uh, you know, you got to do this. You got to do that. And the coach's job is to really balance all of those uh, you know, conflicting stories and bringing them together into one. And I think, you know, what's interesting about Portland uh, as a destination for Nurkic is this is really the first time I think he's kind of felt like he has a home, uh, especially in the NBA. And, and now he's realizing, or at least I think he's going through the process of realizing that what's best for him may not necessarily be what's best for the team. And again, this is the first time he's sort of had the luxury to sort of weigh those things in his life. Uh, and that can be really tricky and that can be disorienting. And I think, uh, you know, he's going through that process right now. That was actually what I was wanting to follow up on was about how he talked about the team. Cause the, the article was really, uh, written beautifully. I loved the, uh, you know, how it came together with the comparison of the two cities and, um, you know, how it ended with uh, the other team and how it ended with Denver and those comparisons. But it was really focused on him as an individual and, you know, sort of as uh, represented by that bowl that you were talking about. But I'm wondering, maybe it made it on the cutting room floor, didn't quite get into the article. But how did he talk about himself as a member of the team? Yeah, so uh, there was a few things where he was sort of saying, look, he understands why there is a fit. And I think he's definitely looking through it from his own personal perspective, which is a fit to him means, you know, a starting role, minutes, uh, playing late in games uh, and having teammates that he feels like he fits with. And there's no question like he views guys like, you know, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum as being guys who really help him be comfortable, help him play his best. Uh, and they're t- the type of players he never had in Denver or really at any other point uh, of his career. And so I think that those are sort of the positives to him uh, about the situation that I would actually categorize as sort of like team dynamics, right? Like you need to have a chemistry between your guards and your big guy to be a successful team in this league. Uh, and, and that goes, you know, basically any point in the NBA in the last 50 years. I mean, that you could say the same thing. So um, I think he's very appreciative of that. He also likes stats a lot. You know, I think the the Nets episode recently where he got benched in the fourth quarter and I guess he played Ed Davis because I think stats was looking for more mm-hmm. versatile defense in that game. And, you know, Nurkish doesn't play at all in the fourth quarter. And then he mysteriously disappears in the locker room. Uh, and then he winds up kind of explaining it away after the fact saying, oh, you know, I was in the training room or whatever. 
Um, I mean, that kind of situation where you're getting benched in, in a critical moment is exactly the type of thing that set him off in Denver. And it really led uh, him to basically not have communication with Malone for months at a time because he was so frustrated over that. And I think what you saw uh, a different response this time, which was, you know, the next day, you know, I'm sure once he calmed down, he came out and tried to make it right. He gave a statement. He made sure he kind of cleared the air. I talked to his agent. His agent tried to do the same thing uh, in the immediate aftermath of that, you know, trying to clear the air, saying that, you know, Nurkic, uh, you know, likes everyone there. He's, you know, he's still totally bought into what they're trying to do. Um, and they tried to move forward. And I think uh, for Stotts, it's tricky because, look, there's not that many coaches around the league that are playing kind of traditional fives mm-hmm. down the stretch of games. I mean, almost everybody goes small late in games, at least during the playoffs when they're really, really trying to win. And so taking a guy like Nurkic off the court late in the game is a totally natural coaching decision. Uh, but it's made a lot more difficult if you're worried that this guy might respond negatively to it and, and kind of check out mentally. So. Uh, again, it's one of those situations where you have a player who doesn't have, you know, 20 years of basketball or like 10 years of NBA experience uh, to be able to put some of these individual coaching decisions into context and where he still sort of reverts to that bull mentality uh, when it happens. But the fact that he's still, uh, you know, responding after that episode, he, he had a couple of nice games and, and Stas did, you know, play him late uh, in, in a few games after that. Uh, to me, it was a promising sign, but I don't think that's a solved problem uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I think they're definitely still working through that. Did he talk much about, or did the two of you talk much about his relationship with Damian Lillard? I've been wondering about throughout the the league or throughout the years, if you can think of, uh, you know, center guard combos who had this type of relationship that uh, Damian and Nurkic seems to have where Damian took him under his wing as soon as he got here and helped him uh, find his way. Can you think of other guard center combos like that? Well, one thing during the interview, uh, we were, there's not really any way for me to write this, but uh, I was like, hey, Nurk, I mean, going from a guy like Moody to Dame, that's a big upgrade, right? And he just has this big <laughs> smile on his face like, oh, yeah. You know, he doesn't want to throw anyone necessarily under the bus. Uh, but when you're going from very, you know, inexperienced um, and, you know, unproven uh, point guards in Denver, which is what he had, guys who didn't know who they were, Moody and Murray, I mean, those guys – were still fighting to establish their own NBA reputations. They were worried about themselves. Uh, they were not uh, feeling like they were on solid ground at all. And frankly, they're they're kind of still not. I mean, even a year later, um, you know, they're still fighting for their reputations. To go from that to uh, a situation in Lillard where everyone knows it's his show, right? Everyone knows that uh, he's going to be on all the marketing materials. He's going to be front and center. He's going to take questions. If there's a losing streak, he's going to take the blame. He's going to stand up for his coach. Like Terry Stotts, you know, after that Nets game, you know, Lillard, Lillard immediately is sort of taking that leadership role and saying, Hey, look, uh, don't blame Stotts. He knows what he's doing. That's just not something that you get that often, uh, in the league. Uh, I mean, most good teams have players like that. Obviously Steph Curry and golden state, uh, you can go down the list, but you know, even some of the very best players, a guy like James Harden, I think that's one of the biggest open questions about him is like, is he really willing to take all of the blame when things go bad? Um, it's not something you can take for granted. So from a center's perspective, not only does he have a player uh, in Lillard who he can sort of rely on on the court, a guy who he was really thankful for uh, 
uh, first, you know, setting clear expectations. As soon as Nurkic got to Portland Lillard, it's like, look, no more excuses. All that stuff that happened in Denver is over with. We don't want to hear about it. We just want you to play. Uh, but then on top of that, he was the guy who kept feeding him the ball. I mean, Lillard, or, uh, sorry, Nurkic remembered a game really early uh, after the trade where I think they were playing L.A., and he had missed a few shots early, and, and Lillard just kept coming back to him, kept feeding him, trying to get his confidence going. And Nurkic was like, this is what I would hope for, and this is what I now have. So I think they have a pretty good relationship. I think I encourage people to read Jason Quick's story on that specific relationship because uh, he went into it in even more detail. But uh, there's no question that uh, if you're a guy in Nurkic's position who's trying to get paid, who's trying to put up numbers and, and find a long-term home, it's totally in your interest to have a good relationship with your point guard. Um, and, you know, from that standpoint, I think he's got that. In terms of other kind of comparisons, you know, between ones and fives, I mean, it says a lot about that center position that we don't have a lot of, you know, big-time scoring centers. Uh, in the league. I mean, I guess one combination that comes to mind, you remember Orlando when they had Jameer Nelson uh, and Dwight Howard. I mean, I think those guys were really on the same page uh, running a lot of pick and roll stuff. Uh, Jameer was just, you know, that experienced hand who knew how to keep Dwight at, at, because they asked Dwight to do so much defensively on those teams. And I'm going back almost 10 years right now. Uh, and, and clearly, you know, peak Dwight Howard is a much better player than Nurkic is, but uh, that is the type synergy that you can ride a long way in the league when you have a point guard who has the trust of the center and then you have a center who's motivated because of how the you know point guard leads the show uh that's a really you know mutually beneficial dynamic all right so the idea here that you've kind of gone back and forth with or discussed kind of at length here is the idea of not only relationships with Nurkic but the idea of traditional versus kind of the new age center that we're, that we're seeing in the NBA I'm curious and I know you're not a big fan of floor and ceiling and stuff like that when it comes to to positions um, but what do you see Nurk's, I, I don't want to say, Florence Ceiling is really kind of weird, his best possible self in Portland. How does that manifest itself? Yeah, I think you have to be a little nervous that it may never get uh, better than last year, right? I mean, that's that's got to be in the back of their mind when they're thinking about, like, how much money are you going to be able to commit to him? Because that run he had was just so sensational. Everything came together very well. And most importantly, the the opponents weren't ready for it, right? So he's basically feasting because defenses uh, don't know what he can and can't do. And they were acting sort of like I was at the time of the trade, which is, you know, this guy's unproven. There's not a lot that he can do. It's always trickier to do those things when you're coming back through the second time. Uh, in terms of his floor, to me, he's a starting center. You know, I think he's at that point of his career. I mean, there's a lot of things. Uh, that I wish he could do better. Uh, the turnovers really bug me. His willingness to get into the the ISO stuff on the block is a little frustrating. You'd like if he could really be that knockdown mid-range shooter. Um, and I know that was sort of a point of emphasis for him this summer, trying to improve his shooting. Uh, that would you know certainly open things up, not only for himself, but I think the team's offense. Uh, but when you're looking at like to me, him or Plumley, it's you know two different flavors. But personally, I'd rather have Nurkic. You know, I think uh, you know their defensive numbers this year. There's probably a little smoke and mirrors to that, uh, but they have just been more solid on that side than they were in previous years. Uh, I give him you know a good chunk of the credit. Obviously, he's not this big, athletic, uh, you know, rim protecting like shot blocking menace. Uh, 
but he's solid. And then in terms of like pick and roll defense, I think he's making strides there. And I think that's really why he lost the weight. I mean, when I look at his decision to, to trim down, I mean, for years he'd been trying to lose weight. And I think at some point, once you're in the mix and you realize exactly what's asked of you as a starting center, uh, you realize you can't do it unless you do lose the weight. It was sort of like a survivalist's, uh, you know, maxim. It's like, look, if you don't get down to 270, so you can run around a little bit on the perimeter and step out on uh, shooters and, you know, recover when the pick and roll goes to the big guy, then, you know, you're not going to be on the court as much as you want to be on the court. And I think he's making progress there. Um, you know, in terms of, is he ever going to be a top 10 center? Probably not. Uh, but I think at this point, uh, you know, he's a solid starting center. And I think that's, that's how I would characterize sort of his floor and ceiling. It's like, he's a starting center and he's probably going to, you know, max out at sort of an average starting center. And for Portland, you know, compared to some guys they've had in recent years, you know, that might be uh, better than some other options. Okay, so there's, there's two things I want to touch on here that I, I can't let you off the hook for. <laughs> One, you just you kind of dropped in the uh, the Blazers' defense might be a little bit of smoke and mirrors. <laughs> just got to gloss right on past that. Okay, so that, well, one, that we, we have to touch on that one, and then we have to talk about what what is Nurkic's value on the market afterwards. But I want, I want to hear your, your thoughts on the defense because they're probably in line with mine. Well, uh, I, I mean, look, we've seen some really bad defenses, so I'm not trying to like undercut (laughs) their progress, but it's like, are they going to end this season as, you know, a top two or top three defense in the league, whatever they've been at. I think I saw a tweet. Someone said, this is like the best defense they've had relative, uh, to the rest of the league in like 40 years or 30 years. I mean, that is pretty insane. And to me, that is like scream small sample size. Uh, especially when you sort of break down the individual players. I mean, they've got some good individual defensive players, but uh, like their best defensive lineup uh, is not super duper imposing. And, you know, they also struggle with some of the same issues because of Nurkic. Like they're not going to be able to be like super versatile and play those like crazy interchangeable lineups that some of these other teams can play, whether it's Boston or Golden State or or Houston, where they can match up with basically any five players on the court. Doesn't matter who they are. I mean, Portland is is more locked into certain looks and I think that will eventually catch up to them. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious about your thoughts on their defense. I definitely think there's been a lot less of the, like, head-slapping, just free coasting layups this mm-hmm. year. Uh, at the start, And at the start of last year, it was just so painful to watch those. And um, the fact that they've cleaned that up, they do seem more committed. I think that, to me, it mostly offsets sort of the regression on offense. I mean, I think... Obviously, if you're concerned about anything right now, I think it's some of the stagnation. The points are just not coming nearly as easily as they did last year. Uh, and I'm sure that's frustrating for Stotts. I, I think that's why he's searching a little bit. I know he's played Myers more in these last few games. I think he's just trying to do whatever he can to, to create that space, open things up for his guards. But uh, to me, you know, when you look at the defense, it's like it's notably better than it's been in the last few years. And I just don't think it's quite elite, you know. Yeah, no, I, I think that the, the main point you want to talk on, I'll, I'll let you hop in right after this one, this little point here, Tara. The the big takeaway for me is the, the lack of versatility. They're stuck, even even if you take Nurkic off the team and you throw Ed Davis out there, who is, albeit a lot more mobile, up and down their lineup, the only player that they have that I'd call like a flex player is Al Farouk Aminu. Harkless can kind of fit into that, but Aminu is the only guy that you can go, okay, one through four he has a chance on. 
Like he, he can switch guys pretty much everywhere. If you look around the NBA right now, how many teams have just one guy or two guys that can do that? Most teams, especially the teams that are competitive, have a truckload of those guys. That's the way the, the league is moving. Portland has one guy who's, you know, between 6'8 and 6'10 that can cover multiple positions. That's it. That's just a really, really strange thing to me when you look at the way the NBA is currently structured. And I think that's the biggest key for Portland's defense going forward. While the, they're certainly better than they have been in the past, I think most of that can be chalked up to effort between Damian and CJ. Um, beyond that, I think there's obviously some schedule opponents um, and some wild things statistically that are kind of skewing those numbers. But that's at least where I'm sitting at defensively. Tara, go ahead, go ahead and hop in on this. Okay, two things. When you said they only have one guy between 6'8 and 6'10 who can card multiple positions, you're talking about Aminu? Yes. Is Vonley too tall for that, or do you not consider him able to uh, guard multiple positions? I think he can guard bigs. I mean, we not, not to, to date the podcast, but we're recording this right after the Philadelphia game. Um, we saw how he did against Ben Simmons. And Ben Simmons is a, is a freak. That There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. But he's in a class all his own as far as... Um, being able to be flexible. That's the kind of versatility that I'm talking about. Length, athleticism. Like, Vonley moves well for his size. There's no doubt about that. But you're not going to entrust him, at least for long periods of time, to guard a stretch four who can actually put the ball on the floor with it and, and not look bad. I mean, that's exactly what And is what Evan saw. Turner not tall enough? I don't think Turner's flexible enough to actually guard most fours. I think he's the okay. closest thing. If, if you were asking me to peg them, it would be Aminu, Turner, Harkless. Because Turner's okay. a, a little bit stronger and can move up. But I, I just... None of those guys outside of Aminu really give you the, the flex um, to be able to play them together for long periods of time because of the offensive problems that you face more than anything. Well, you know I'll be satisfied with that answer because you flattered Aminu and you know how much I like Aminu. So I'll give you a pass on not jumping on board with Vonley just yet. But my other question that I have for Ben has to do with effective combinations um, that the play, that I don't know how how many games you've had a chance to watch this year. But I'm trying I'm really trying to look and see what are the most effective uh, forward combinations that the Blazers have been able to put out and. Th- to this point, I'm not really sure. And I'm trying to figure out, I, I believe that Vonley makes Nurkic better in a lot of ways. Um, you know, most of a lot of the bigs, when you look at their, you know, their performance with Vonley on and off, some of their, you know, best performers overall are when Vonley is on the field with them. So I haven't really figured out how to nail that down, but I suspect that there are certain players that Vonley play, pairs really well with i'm curious who you think pairs well of the forwards on the blazers well i think that's sort of been his most preferred look right like pairing nurkic and vonley um Mm -hmm. i feel like he's probably going to stick with that until the defense falls apart and then at that point he'll really start to uh experiment i think when you're saying in a vacuum like what you would probably prefer to have is like aminu as the four uh, whoever your best wing is, I guess at this point it's Harkless. I mean, I think maybe in an ideal world it would have been Crab, and then the two guards. I mean, that, that is sort of like the traditional orientation, where you're getting as maximum spread around as your one your one big as possible, and now you're 
you know, teams are probably going to pick on Nurkic in those pick and rolls and really make him work and try to pull him away from the basket. But uh, at least you've kind of got the best offensive defensive balance that you can muster. Um, but I think right now what Portland's decided to do is, okay, well, we're going to stay big a little bit more, put Vonley in. Uh, he does all the little things. He's, he's fairly versatile, especially among guarding big men. And uh, he works, you know, and then, uh, you know, from that point, maybe that requires sacrificing on offense because you're really crunching your spacing in that situation. But as long as the defense is playing well enough to get you wins, you kind of go with it. My big concern with all of the combinations they've got right now, how well will they hold up in the playoffs? You know, assuming they make it there wants people to start to play the chess game because the first thing that, you know, a lot of teams are going to do is they're going to attack your center and try to get him off the court and then force you into small ball looks. And I think for Portland, that gets dicey because like we said, they're going to have a real choice here with Nurkic. Like he's coming up, you know, potentially on a payday. He's not going to want to just be cast aside, uh, but it would probably be in the best interest of the team to do that. Uh, But if you do do that, what is your best small ball look? And uh, you know, again, some teams, it could ple- just play Vonley at the five uh, and spread out as much as possible around that. Uh, but so you know, there is a situation where like their best four or five combination doesn't even include Nurkic, even though I, I would consider him like by far their best, you know, center uh, against certain playoff matchups. And I think that really just speaks to sort of what Danny's talking about in terms of positional versatility. Like the guys who you want the most are people who can guard two through four. If you have guards who can guard the one and two, that's awesome. Uh, if you have, you know, big men like Vonley who can kind of guard the four and five, that's awesome too. But the really prized players, especially in the playoffs, when you're getting against these high-powered offenses, are the guys who can guard two through four. And, and Portland is pretty limited on that account. Um, and you know, Nurkic could lose a hundred pounds. Like he, he's not going to be, <laughs> he's, he's not going to be able to guard Kevin Durant. You know, it's just, it's not going to happen. And so. Uh, I think that is sort of a, a big structural question with this Portland team is like, who is their best five in the playoffs? Um, and I think that that five, no, almost no matter who it is, uh, their ceiling to me is not that high. So, you know, we've <laughs> Wait, danced did you around call this. Dan Danny? Did yeah, he, he, he did. It's this. Oh, okay. This, this, will, this, will, this will get out there. Uh, <laughs> I was Danny in high school. Uh, hey, well, look, in my defense, my middle brother <laughs> is named Daniel now, but his whole life uh, he went by Danny until he became an adult, and I still call him Danny, too. So yeah. this is this is my bad. This is not on Dan. <laughs> oh, but it's out there. It's, it's Okay, there was never, like, a delineated point where it happened. I can't, like, point to and go, this is when it happened. It just became Dan. I don't know when. But, yes, throughout high school, it was Danny. Uh, throughout my entire life okay. until that point, it was. So Danny had a second part to his question, and that was (laughs) God. Yes. How? What? What? What is the going rate of a Nurkic? Great question. I think it's still totally up in the air. Part of the reason the center market two years ago it was like supermarket sweep. Everyone's getting paid, right? Like just let's run around, throw whatever you want in the shopping cart, and run out. And all of a sudden, Biombo's got like eighty million and. Uh, you know, Jan Mahidmi is getting paid out of this world. Last summer, uh, there was definitely a correction back against that, um, where, you know, a guy like Nerlens Noel didn't even get an offer. So he's basically taking like a one-year qualifying offer uh, to stay uh, in Dallas, and now he's not playing. So, you know, it's been very volatile, that center position, in part because of what we're talking about, where the position's changing so rapidly here. 
you know, teams don't even know necessarily what they want to pay for. Uh, I think the one thing Nurkic has going for himself next summer is that there's basically two big headliners, DeMarcus Cousins uh, and DeAndre Jordan. And then after that, he has a case as like the best center who's available. Um, so from that standpoint, if there's a team that has cap space that really needs to fill a hole, uh, he should be able to, you know, find an offer out there, uh, you know, from a, a team like that. So that's playing in his, in his style. On the other hand, obviously, the, the traditional center standpoint uh, is going to hold him back because people are going to say, well, look, unicorns are three-point shooters and shot blockers and guys who can defend in space. And Nurkic is not a major shot blocker. He's definitely not a three-point shooter. And you know, he's not the best defender in space. So, like, the most important things that people want from centers, you know, maybe he doesn't bring to the table. Uh, but acknowledging all his flaws, like I said earlier, I think he's better than a player like Mason Plumley. Uh, I think if he winds up starting this whole season and putting up pretty good numbers, he's going to have more earning potential than a guy like, say, Cody Zeller. And then Kelly Olynyk, obviously, he had that amazing game against Washington, like Game Seven of the playoffs. But uh, you know, he was still able to get like a fifty million dollar contract, even though he had never truly established himself as sort of like a core player in Boston. Uh, and Miami was still there and kind of waiting to pay him. So I sort of view that as his basement uh, when we're talking about like his next deal. Like if those guys can get paid, I don't see why Nurkic couldn't get paid to that same level unless everyone is just totally freaked out by the Denver experience uh, and, you know, not willing to uh, invest in him. Now, the other thing I'd say is the whole restricted free agency thing's tricky because you have to convince a team to be willing to like name you as the guy and, you know, wait for you to, uh, you know, sign the offer sheet and go through that whole process. I mean, everybody remembers what a headache it was uh, with Nicholas Batum, you know, all that back and forth years ago. So, you know, is Nurkic that level of a player where people are willing to do that for to like make him a top priority? Uh, I do think that's an open question. I think it's also a question because people will probably look at Portland as being pretty highly motivated to keep him just because like, what are their other options except for, you know, trusting some of these young guys to really grow or to give Myers Leonard like his, his 72nd chance, right? Like they don't really have a lot of other great internal options. So I could see some teams saying, look, we're not even going to go after Nurkic because Portland's just going to match. What's the point? Um, but I guess to answer your question, I think the, the basement would be like that four year, $50 million range, or, or maybe a little bit higher than that, where he's getting paid as like, you know, an average starter in this league, um, you know, which is right around like the 15, uh, 15 million per year mark. Um, and then uh, his ceiling, I think depends on how well he plays going forward, but I don't think his first two months here have been like sensational. You know, I think if anything, he's sort of kind of treading water in terms of his earning potential next summer. Yeah. That's, that's kind of one thing I, I was wondering where you're going to go on that, the, the cap. Cause I, I said the other day that I'd be surprised if it, if it approached 20 million, like that to me, like that would mean he had a, just an absolutely awesome season averaged probably 18, nine, 18 and 10 and two shot 55% from the floor and added a ton on both sides of the floor for Portland and played roughly 30 minutes a night. Like the, basically your best case scenario. Cause I mean, yes, I think it's, it'd be more likely that he gets like a, you know, a four year, $60 million deal than a four year, $80 million deal. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, yeah. That would be my guess. But again, this is, I'm just speculating. I, I don't know. And I think it's, I mean, I've seen enough to say that those bigger numbers like that 18 and nine or that 18 and 10, I, I think that ship has sailed. You know, I think he's settling in as like a 15 and eight 
type of guy. And with the uh, capacity you know, to have a big night, like the difference between yep. him and uh, a Robin Lopez. Obviously, Robin was like what twelve and twelve and ten, I think, at his best in Portland, something around those lines. Um, but he never had a big night. Nurt can have a night where he can drop thirty and fifteen. We, we, we've seen that happen multiple times. So yeah, I think if you're if you're going to err on the higher side of those that group of guys, that's kind of what you're paying for, right? Is the fact that he's number one, he's younger than all those guys, or, or younger than they were when they signed those deals. And the potential that he can he can have the, the ability to take over a game, which is something that is rare um, from a traditional big. For sure. Well, the New Orleans thing is interesting to me, though, because yeah. like let's just say like people are scared off of you know thinking Portland's going to match. I mean, could there be some like crazy scenario where like the outside market dries up and then Neil just plays crazy hardball and thinks, look, I've got all of these other huge contracts on the books. Do I try to make Nurkic come back and, and prove it for another year? Uh, and then with like sort of the, you know, the, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge that we're going to give you the big contract the following summer. I mean, I, I think a strategy like that would be like super risky and could totally blow up in his face. And I think there's some pressure on Nurkic's agent here. Like you have to go out there and do what Batum's agent did and lock down that big offer from a team that can actually use you. Uh, remember how he did with Minnesota and you got to play out that saga. And, and I think, you know, going through the league right now, how many, how many landing spots do you see? Yeah, not many because, you know, it's the same thing with like Jonas Valanciunas up in Toronto, right? Like every time we talk about, oh, yeah, maybe he'd be a good trade target. Well, who really wants him? You know, and I think, uh, you know, Jonas, you could argue, has like more craft and, you know, more uh, offensive moves one on one than Nurkic does. Uh, maybe Nurkic now is a little bit more mobile defensively than Valanciunas is. But if you can't trade Valanciunas, um, will it be hard to find a team that really wants to invest in Nurkic? You know, I think that's, uh, you know, a fair question. Or another guy you could kind of look at would be uh, Greg Monroe. I mean, he kind of gets, you know, Forever tossed Forever linked into, to Portland. Yeah, and he kind of gets tossed into this whole trade with Bledsoe. Um, you know, people don't necessarily value him that highly. Uh, and again, he's one of these players where it's, you know, offense first, defense second. Um and he's got some real craft to his game too. And it'll be interesting to see whether there's a market for him as well. So uh, there's a lot going on with Nurkic. There's a lot of different dynamics here that are even bigger than him or even bigger than Portland. I mean, it, it comes down to the entire style of the league. You know, one thing someone mentioned to me that could play in his favor, uh, you know, if some of these guys like Embiid and Porzingis, if they really stick as like all-star impact makers for the whole season, do we see a shift where, you know, traditional centers, maybe they come back in vogue just a little bit because you need to have that body for a matchup uh, in the playoffs, right? So, like, with Golden State, we totally associate them with small ball and versatility, but they probably have more traditional centers than, like, any other roster in the league. They, they have, like, four or five different centers on that team, you know, and none of them are very good. You know, Zaza plays way too many <laughs> minutes for my liking. Uh, but if they needed to go up against Embiid in the finals, boy, they have a heck of a lot of different guys to throw at them. And so, you know, do we see this whole trend towards small ball and mobility and pace and space? I mean, does that start to, you know, slightly reverse course uh, because we finally had a couple of big guys really, uh, you know, break out this season? Uh, that could be something else to watch next summer. Um I've got a question. Actually, Tara has a question that she gave me that I, I, I want to bring up. Um, and it kind of falls off your the the Joel Embiid piece that you did. Basically, is what do you think of 
centers for the future. Obviously, Embiid being the pinnacle of that. But where does Nurkic kind of fall in line in that group? I know you, see, you don't see him as a, as a top 10 guy, but do you see him basically by, by the end of his contract? Let's say he signs a four-year deal. Does, is he still viable with the way things are trending? Yeah, and that's sort of what I was getting at. I mean, this could be in flux. Like, this, there could be a correction that's about to play out here because of Embiid and Porzingis especially. Uh, the one thing that's tricky is, I mean, during the finals, for example, I mean, all 10 guys on the court at some point of the finals were 6'9 and shorter, you know? So that doesn't leave much room for Nurkic to keep up with those guys when LeBron James and Kevin Durant are playing center, right? I mean, that <laughs> there's no matchup there that's favorable uh, for Nurkic if the NBA continues to have that trend. You look at what Houston's doing. I mean, playing P.J. Tucker at center on opening night. Uh, you look at what Boston's doing. You know, Al Horford, I mean, he probably came into the league as a four, uh, and now he's sort of like one of the physically imposing centers of the league, right? So he's absolutely going against the grain, but, um, you know, I think if, if you're Portland, uh, you're not necessarily, you're not, your first concern shouldn't be like, are we completely in vogue? Like, are we wearing the hottest, coolest gear around the NBA? Are we playing this like completely? We're too cool for that, Ben. Yeah, you know that. Exactly. Keep Portland weird, right? And <laughs> and uh, I think that's, they have a bigger concern. Their first concern is like, we got to have somebody at center. You know, you can't play Aminu at center. That's not going to work. Uh, and, you know, We've maybe Von yeah, and you know it, it wasn't necessarily a lasting idea. I actually kind of like it as like an outside the box thing. I've been I've been pushing the Bucks to play Giannis at center basically all season long point, because point center. Yeah, yeah. I just I love that stuff, but um, I don't not sure that's Portland's uh, best long term move. Uh, I think if I was Nurkic, the next step is just pull a Brook Lopez and just become a three point shooter. Jack just shots like, from three. Yeah. Just just practice those corner threes. You know day after day after day for years, uh, get yourself where you can hit like 37% from the corner. And then, you know, you'll make sure you'll get another contract in the future. Yeah. I mean, Lopez went from what, taking 63s to 150, 63s in his career to 150 in one season. So, I mean, the, the, the transformation can happen if the, if the skill is there. Yeah. And I mean, these centers, they're, they're realizing they're kind of like dodo birds, you know, and they're like, well, they're, they're sort of like, they're sort of like us with the scientists warning us about global warming, you know, and we're like making like modest corrections to our daily lives to make sure we might still live in 20 years. Uh, the centers are doing the exact same thing. They're trying to figure out how to do it. Um, and, you know, I think the big concern for Nurkic is making sure he keeps that weight off because if that weight comes back, it becomes so much more difficult uh, for him to be, you know, a positive impact maker uh, in the NBA. It's so fascinating the way the league changes I, and the way the game changes and how it evolves. And it's, it's just fascinating to me how many changes it, we, we go through. One thing that I, I want to kind of change the topic a little bit because we're kind of running low on time. And I don't want to let Ben get away without asking him about the player rankings that you uh, and Rob Mahoney have done at least the last couple of years. Um, you know, they're all, they always cause a big kerfuffle when they get released and everybody talks about all the rankings from all the various sites. And then the players get mad and offended, or they get, you know, all excited because their fans get excited because their favorite players are ranked high. And then we all sort of forget about it. Once the league starts, at least I sort of forgot about it <laughs> until the league starts, but it's one of my favorite, uh, things that you do. Cause I love reading your, um, 
your pieces. And, um, you know, so we're still in fairly small sample size, but it is getting larger all the time. So I'm wondering preliminarily, how are you feeling about, uh, the player rankings that you did? And maybe we can just kind of narrow it down to like maybe the blazers. Basically, um, you had Nurkic at 69 CJ at 39 and Damien at 17. So how are you feeling about those so far this year? Well, you know, I'm contractually obligated to remind you that those rankings are unimpeachable. We've never got, we've never gotten one wrong. Oh, they'll never change. Okay. We've never gotten one wrong. We'll never admit it. We'll definitely never admit, admit a mistake. Uh, and certainly we stand by them a hundred percent. I'm feeling fine about all three of those, to be honest, at least, you know, so far, um, you know, Nurkic might not be playing to his, you know, I, we tend to look at, you know, first, second, third options, especially when we're looking at this. So a guy like CJ, you know, it's tricky because if he's in a vacuum, you know, he could probably lead a pretty awesome offense, you know, by himself. Uh, But, you know, just because of his situation in Portland, you know, maybe he's, you know, stuck in that, you know, quote unquote, number two role. Uh, When we look at the point guards, you know, Dane might actually be a little bit lower than we had him just because Kyrie's been playing so well. Like if we redid it this moment, I think we'd probably have to have Kyrie above Dame um, because, he's played so much more defense than he's ever cared about. And actually, by the way, so is Dame, Uh, but he's now in a number one role. He's proven that he can win games and be the lead guy for a team that actually, uh, you know, is competing for something which he had never really done before. Uh, He'd always been second to LeBron or, you know, playing for just atrocious teams. So I think Kyrie would probably jump over Dame. Um, And, you know, they actually might both jump over John Wall just because he's been a little slow to start. Um, but I would say, you know, we look at that as an annual exercise and, you know, you could have a totally new top 100, you know, on a weekly basis or a monthly basis or, you know, an all-star weekend basis. And so if we made a mistake on it, uh, we have to own that mistake for the entire year and then learn from it and then try to, you know, make a better process, uh, the following year. Um, I think one interesting thing though, with Portland is, like who is their next guy outside of those three to sort of be in this conversation? I'd be curious oh, what you boy. guys think. Like, do they have another guy who is in contention? Maybe Terry, you think it's Aminu? Uh, he'd probably be the next my, uh, name that comes to mind for me. That's uh, who I would say. Yeah. But I think the drop off when you're getting to Portland's bench or their role players this year has been a little bit more substantial than I expected. I mean, that's, that's the big thing, right? And, and, and Tara and I probably agree on this one right now with the way Aminu, and not just the fact that it's Aminu and that there's a drop-off. Aminu was playing really well before he rolled his ankle, maybe the best stretch of his career. I mean, he was shooting the ball confidently. His defense was sublime, to put it you know simply. Um, he was rebounding the ball at just incredibly. Uh, I mean, everything that you wanted him to do, I mean, the, the Alfred Aminu's uh, adventures in dribbling had pretty much ceased. Uh, he was either shooting the ball or passing it or, a, a, you know, one dribble attack um, to the rim, limiting those those scenarios. So basically everything that you ever wanted from Alfred Camino was happening. He was rebounding, playing defense, shooting the three, and not turning the ball over. Um, but you look at the actual production outside the intangible stuffs, and it was, you know, single-digit scoring and double-digit rebounding. I mean, that's nice and all, but... When Nurkic is falling off and Dame's field goal percentage and three-point percentage are down, even though he's getting to the free-throw line a ton, that's not really going to be enough to compensate for the drop offensively that Portland's kind of looked at. Now, they've countered some of that by playing 
pretty well defensively. Um, I think that's kind of been the catalyst to what could have otherwise seen Portland have a really, uh, I don't want to say terrible record, but they could have a bad record right now. And some people can justify that, that, that they've had some coin toss games that have gone against them as well. Uh, but I think that kind of more along the line falls on the fact that they don't have anybody beyond those those three guys, more so that they had bad luck. I, I, I could be wrong, and I'm okay with being wrong in that scenario, but that's ultimately how I look at that situation. Um, yeah, for for us with Aminu, I mean, one guy who we definitely underrated was like Robert Covington of the Sixers, you know, because he, he's just been awesome this year. Mm-hmm. First of all, he hasn't missed a shot. I'm pretty sure he's shooting like 114% yeah, from no, the field. but. Um, he's also one of these interchangeable defensive guys that we mentioned. And so I think, you know, when we're looking forward to next year, maybe a guy like Robertson, who I think we left off this year and, and Covington or and, and Aminu players who do fit that multi-positional defensive uh, role will probably get a little bump. If the league continues to play this, this same way um, just because that is something that's become so valued where, um, you know, two years ago, it wasn't necessarily such sort of a hot buzzword, you know? Yeah, I mean, you, you had every team, I think, the, the perennial championship teams in the past have had one guy that was kind of the 3 and D. Now you see these guys that these teams are stockpiling those guys. I mean, that those are becoming, outside of the, the unicorn players, those are the most sought-after commodities, for sure. Jalen Brown's another one I should have mentioned too. Exactly. I mean, I'm not sure we, we had him on the list and like, he's been unreal for Boston to start the season. So they had Boston um, on the screen here a second ago as is in the background. And, you know, I was watching Tatum Brown and, and Marcus smart. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's, that's a team that stockpiled those guys. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I think Aminu would be the next category, uh, next candidate rather. And then after that, I don't know, you know, I, I think, uh, that could be an issue, you know, with Portland's construction where, could be. you know, again, <laughs> they if, have four if you're talking, yeah, if you're talking <laughs> long term in terms of their ceiling, uh, you know, you got some of these other teams out there, you know, five or six guys. So we necess- we have to just every year put into the top 100 and, and Portland, it's like three. And maybe if you squint and stare really closely, you, you could talk yourself into four. Okay. So I. Oh, go ahead, Tara. What, this is, this I, is one, one last thing on the on the player rankings is the gap between CJ and Damian. Um, I see that closing. I mean, that's that would just be my if you showed it to me and I looked at that list, I'd be like, mm, I'm not sure Damian and CJ are that far apart, but I'm not really ready to say whether or not CJ moves up or Damian moves down. Of course, I would like them both to move up. But I feel like the gap is this from what we've seen out of 20 games this year. I think uh, CJ has taken a big leap, in my opinion, this year. For sure. And, you know, part of what we do, it's, you know, we always want guys to prove it. So, you know, we're looking at this as not it's an annual exercise in that we re-rank every year. But then we also try to look back at like their last three seasons. What have their roles been? What have their roles been for playoff teams? And for CJ, like in certain situations where. So he's never been the number one guy on a playoff team. He's never sort of been the guy who won, who won a series as uh, the main guy for his team. Uh, he's never kind of been in that situation, like maybe with Durant and Westbrook, where when they were together in Oklahoma City, you know, one of them would miss tons of time. The other one would step up and really show this like unbelievable ceiling that we had never seen before. Uh, you know, Dame missed a little time last year. Uh, but we've never seen like fully unleashed CJ. And I think fully unleashed CJ that totally, uh, you know, is a potential, you know, a top 20 guy. I, I can picture it in my head, him doing a lot of the same things that Kyrie's doing in Boston. Uh, but, you know, from that standpoint, like we haven't seen it. So we do have to hold that against him a little bit. 
um, you know, at the same time, like there's a lot of value to having a guy like CJ who's willing and able and able to stay happy uh, in that complimentary role. And I think that's one reason why, you know, especially uh, before, like right now, I've always resisted the talk to like break them up by trade is because, you know, it's not easy to have two stars who sort of get along and are buddies and are willing to, um, you know, play together and alongside each other. Um, but, you know, that could be a question Portland looks at in the future. So you're, you're, you're nailing my segues for me here, man. I love it. You and I have talked about this plenty uh, over the past couple of years, but where do you see this team both at the trade deadline this year and this summer? Like what needs to happen in order for Portland to either progress uh, naturally or, or to grow or to completely reset what they've got going now for three years? Yeah, you know, I think unfortunately because of the commitments they made, not this past summer, but the previous summer, I think they're just sort of in a holding pattern where they're sort of waiting out their previous mistakes. I mean, you pray for a miracle that you could trade an Evan Turner contract. You know, it's probably not going to happen. I think to me, Portland is still in this position where they could be like, you know, a six, seven, eight seed in the West, especially if they stay healthy with these other teams who are sort of falling off. And I think, you know, history dictates that the Blazers will respond to that as a successful season and they'll probably try to stay the course. Um, you know, so staying the course would most likely mean you bring Nurkic back. You may have to trade, uh, you know, one of your smaller contracts or, you know, another player to, you know, make the, you know, the numbers pencil out to kind of balance your books a little bit. So you're not totally loaded up. Um, but my guess is that at the start of next season, they probably look pretty similar to they look, you know, this season. And I know that's not a popular take, um, but that was pretty much my take at this point, you know, last year too. And when you're backed into a corner, your options are, you know, much more significantly limited and, you know, their only other real option. Cause I don't think a player like Nurkic has tons of trade value at the deadline, uh, being that he's going to be a free agent. Uh, and you know, he does require a certain level of fit and so forth. I mean, your only nuclear option is to trade either Dame or CJ. Like I said, I've been pretty resistant to that, you know, throughout, uh, and I think the earliest that they would really consider that would be next summer. See, <laughs> we, we, we always come back to this because I think you and I see a lot of the same things just going about it differently in how Portland is. Um, personally, I, I side on the, I'm on the side of the fence that wants to kick the rebuild uh, into gear early. I understand that Evan Turner's contract, uh, even Maurice Harkless and Myers Leonard's contracts are difficult to move. Um, I'm at the point though where we're kind of we've discussed here that we're the sixth seed, seventh seed, eighth seed, maybe fifth seed. It's kind of their ceiling, and that the holding pattern for that um, is that best for Portland going forward. I think that Portland's market kind of dictates that that's okay and allowed, um, whereas in other places it wouldn't be. Um, so. I don't know. I, I find myself kind of going back and forth on this more often than not citing on, on blowing it up. But what do you think of the the idea that this is kind of a make or break season for Portland as far as the executive staff is concerned? That's obviously Neil O'Shea and down to the coach and Terry's thoughts. I mean, I think unless the bottom totally falls out, I wouldn't characterize it as that. And when I look at their their play so far this season, like I think they're pretty much as good as their record. They're above 500, and that's better than you can say for, you know, a lot of teams who are in that similar tier uh, in the West. You know, one 
issue with blowing it up is that you do have to pitch that to Dame, you know, and Dame's mm-hmm. like square in the middle of his prime right now. And that is a really tough sell because he doesn't have years to waste. And it's not like he's going to come out and, you know, turn around and demand some trade or like, you know, turn his back on an organization in his city that he's been very loyal to the whole way. But that's still a very tough sell. I don't want to be the one who has to go to Damian Lord and say, hey, we're blowing this up. And yeah. I guarantee you, Neil O'Shea, after their years and years together of, you know, being BFFs, doesn't want to have to be that guy either. So I think he's going to be resisting that impulse uh, for as long as possible. And usually what happens in these situations is, uh, and we learned this sort of from the Rich Cho era, right? It's if there's going to be a blow up, it's always the next guy who executes it, right? So I, I think if if I had to, to wager, you know, Neil's going to hang on for dear life and just keep selling his vision for as long as possible. And as long as they're in the playoffs or very close to it, I think that will be good enough for ownership. Uh, and unless they, you know, completely blow up, like to the level where, like, let's say they never make that Nurkic trade last year. And so they just really fizzle down the stretch and they never have that turnaround. Um, you know, maybe that would have gotten Paul Allen's attention. But I will say this. I mean, after, you know, covering blow by blow of Paul Allen's like height of impatience in terms of Cho and Pritchard and uh, Nate McMillan and Chad Buchanan and all of that. He's been really patient with both Olshay and Stotts here for the last few years. So I don't know if he's getting soft in his old age <laughs> or uh, if, if he's just maybe being a little bit realistic or if he realizes like, you know, there's super teams out there. Like, what are you really going to do uh, against Golden State or Cleveland or some of these other teams? Um, but either way, he's shown a lot of, you know, restraint. And I haven't necessarily seen any, you know, major signs of that cracking here in the short term. Terry, do you have anything else here for Ben? No, I think that uh, we def- I definitely want to put in a plug for the Open Floor podcast, which he co-hosts with Andrew Sharp. It is super entertaining. And so people, after, of course, after they listen to our podcast, because our podcast is, of course, number one in everyone's hearts, number two in your hearts should be the Open Floor podcast. You guys have great chemistry. You have great rapport. You're funny. You challenge each other. And uh, say hi to Andrew Sharp for me. Maybe I should start calling him Andy. What do you think? Oh, go, go for it. <laughs> I'm sure call you Benny. <laughs> yeah, I, I got some Bennies in high school. Danny could probably tell <laughs> yeah. us about that. But, uh, guys, I want to say just thanks for having me on. And uh, it was a great conversation. And best of luck with the show and everything else. Appreciate it, Ben. Go, oh, ahead, go, ahead, go ahead and plug everything else that you, you want to here. SI.com slash MBA, uh, at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-L, sorry, two L's, I-V. ER on Twitter. Uh, that should do it. Tara? Yeah, you can find <laughs> me at TCB Biggs and on Blazer's Edge. You can find the podcast on blazersedge.com and on almightyballer.com. Oh, hey, Dan, we got to start remembering to remind people that coming up uh, in February, Blazer's Edge Night is going to happen on February 27th. So we're putting information in all of the show notes about uh, how to contribute tickets to Blazer's Edge Night. Yes, the holiday 
holiday time is kind of when we start gearing up for Blazers Edge Night and for everybody else who doesn't know. So when we send a ton of people who wouldn't otherwise have the chance to go to a Blazers game to a Blazers game, and it's an unbelievably awesome opportunity. So we'll have a link at the bottom of the podcast on BlazersEdge.com for all the information there. You can go ahead and click in and find a way to donate tickets. Uh, I'm going to see if I can get through this with actually spelling my name right. This is apparently the spelling portion of the uh, podcast. <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter at DMarang. Uh, I'm debating. I, I, I've been asked to change it to at Dan Morang NBA because apparently people are having difficulties with uh, with my Twitter handle. So I'm, I might have to might have to make a few changes here. Um, add a few more letters to the uh, to the Twitter handle. Um, for Tara, for wow, Ben, Dan, that's quite a quite a problem for people to have. <laughs> I, I know, right? I've actually had people tell me that it's a difficult uh, situation. So uh, might have to this actually adjust. Like a- this sounds like a branding crisis. I don't know what to say. Yeah, this I know. Is, uh, it, this, it's, it's a very maybe difficult it should be Danny Morang. You know what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change it to at Danny Morang. That way, I, I don't have to worry about it. because there's somebody out there that has at Dan Morang, and he hasn't used Twitter in like three years, and it still drives me crazy. But for Tara, for Ben, uh, I'm Dan Morang. Thanks for joining us. Uh, remember, you can catch us on AlmightyBaller.com at Blazers Edge. Find us on iTunes and anywhere else for your podcast days. Make sure you go ahead and rate, review, do all that good stuff, and uh, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>